Uh, well, good morning, half of the Shore Church. Um, that, nice to see you here face to face again. Um, if you're visiting this morning, we welcome you. I want to give you a warm welcome to uh, hope you have enjoyed our worship so far and that you'll be edified by from the Word. Uh, one, um, some, one piece of news that I'm sure all of you have heard, but I just want to make sure. Uh, that really excites me and has brought me a great deal of relief is that Jer and Jody Adrian will be joining the Shore Church family. Uh, so we had a, yeah, yes, yes, it's a, it's a great answer to prayer. Uh, I think I've been thanking God every day for it. Um, and so uh, that is a great blessing. So. Uh, Today is also my privilege to speak to you from Matthew chapter 5, from the Beatitudes in our second in the series. But before that, let's pray together. Our Father, you have graciously and bountiful given us everything that we need. But especially, Lord, you've given us the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts and the word of Christ to dwell in our hearts. And you have mercifully washed us with the Holy Spirit, who reveals to us your good news who empowers our thanksgiving and service to you for your glory. So, Lord, whatever our life circumstances are today, whether they are pleasant or sorrowful, whether they are joyful or in mourning, we know that you will bring us home and we will delight in the light of your life. Strengthen us this day. Teach us from your word, we ask. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. <clears throat> so if you weren't with us last week, uh, we just started out a new series in the Beatitudes, and uh, Jordan reminded us of the context of the Beatitudes, that they are in a message, a disruptive message of the gospel. It disrupts us in many ways. It goes counter, sometimes even contradicts the present cultural values that are prevalent in our society today, and quite frankly, even that we may hold. So, but I want to look at a different context. I want to remind you of the events that have led up to this sermon, uh, because there are many twists and turns, and I think um, Matthew's gospel um, is like that. It, it gets to a point in the story, and then something happens that you're not expecting. And I think that's the same thing that is happening with the Beatitudes. When you read them, when you take time to think about them, they are paradoxical. They make a stop and, and say, does, do they really go together? Do those thoughts go together? So I just want to quickly run through some major events. So in chapter 3, it, it simply opens. You, we've had the, the infant stories of Jesus. And chapter 3 just opens, John comes, and he's preaching a gospel. He's preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. People from all around the region. So he's preaching in sort of central Israel at the time. But pre people from all the regions around are coming to hear him, to be baptized, and to confess their sin is noted. But John, he is pointing to someone else. He's saying, look, there's a mightier one to come. And he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But here's the first twist that Matthew throws in. Then Jesus appears on the scene, and what does he do? He says to John that 
he wants to be baptized. John consents. He does. And the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, we're told, and a voice from heaven declares, this is my son whom I am well pleased with. And that's how that chapter ends. Then immediately, chapter 4 begins with what? The Spirit of God leads Jesus out into the desert to be tempted by Satan. Another twist in the story. After that, Jesus returns. And he hears of the arrest of John the Baptist. Now, we're not sure where he returns to, whether he returns to his home in Nazareth or not, but it simply says that he hears of the arrest of John, and so he leaves Nazareth and moves to Capernaum. So he leaves, if you're not sure, if you have your Bibles and you have the maps in the back, you know, we read from Genesis to maps, um, you, you will see that Nazareth is sort of centrally located below the Sea of Galilee, but not lower than the Dead Sea, sort of halfway in between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. So he leaves there and he goes to Capernaum, which is on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. So he moves. And when he gets there, he does several things. So first of all, he picks some disciples. Or, I'm sorry, I guess I should follow my notes that are here in front of me. Um, From that time, he begins to preach The same message that John did, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He calls his first disciples, the fishermen, Peter and Andrew, James and John, to follow him. And he immediately then begins to travel around the region, it says, throughout Galilee, teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Because of that, his fame grows, and the crowds that are following him grow. And that's where that chapter ends, and we are at now chapter 5. And this is the way it begins. So follow along with me as we read the larger text of our two verses today. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So a very simple outline to this passage. Verses 1 and 2 are the setting. Jesus has seen the crowds that are following him, and so what does he do? He goes up onto a mountain, probably more like a hill to us who have grown up where there are mountains, But nonetheless, he goes up. He leaves. He sees the crowds, and he goes in a direction where the crowds are not. But his disciples follow him. He sits down, and then he begins to teach them. That's verses 1 and 2, the setting. Then verses 3 through 10, they are what our series is on. 
They're eight Beatitudes. Think of them as eight divine declarations. Okay? Blessed are for, and you fill in the blanks. Blessed are, fill in the blank, for, fill in the blank. They go that way. And then the application in verses 11 and 12. Now this, we can see, is a clear change, but he goes from speaking directly in a form of blessed are, for you shall, to blessed are you when. Okay? That's why I say that there's a separation there, and that's what most commentators that I looked up said. Okay. Now there's a difference in between, a similarity, yet a difference in the, in the three, in the, in the eight Beatitudes that we'll be covering in this sermon. If you look at in verse 3 and verse 10 of chapter 5 of Matthew, you'll see this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, theirs is the kingdom of God. And you look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But if you look at the rest of the Beatitudes, they have a slightly different form, like the two that we will be looking at today. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, last week, Jordan pointed out that verses 3 and 10 act like brackets or parentheses. And in between parentheses is contained an explanatory or qualifying remarks. Or in this case, it, it makes a whole unit. Verses 3 and verse 10 point, point to the fact of the possession that is ours, that we have, that the kingdom is already here, but the rest of the Beatitudes, the other six, point to the fact that it is not complete. We don't have everything. There is a future blessing awaiting us. That is why we, like to, we are encouraging you to read these as a unit. They're not separate. They describe the characteristics of Jesus' followers. And so there are three things we can say. There are more, but three I'd like to just mention today. Beatitudes declare an objective reality that is the result of a divine act, not subjective feelings. Okay? It doesn't matter how we feel about them. It's what God has said, because that is what he will bring about all throughout Scripture. What is the one thing that you notice? If God speaks, what happens? What happens is what he says will happen. The Beatitudes declare divine blessings. They are not entrance requirements for outsiders, but a declaration about insiders. However, they do have an ethical implication or ethical dimension. The community that hears itself pronounced blessed by the Lord does not remain passive, but acts according to the coming kingdom. So that's, that's the tension we have to walk with. They are declarations about who we are in Christ. But who we are in Christ will point us in the direction of the way in which we should behave. 
and point us to how God has supplied for us so that we can walk in that way. So you have to balance that. And that's, that's part of the tension of these things, you know. I, I found that over the course of preparation, that on some days I would read them and I would feel very discouraged. It's like, I will never live up to these things. And on other days I felt elated because, you know, those are the days I was studying where these are divine declarations and what God says, that's what happens. So, please, with me, try to hang on to that thought, okay? If God says it's going to happen, it will happen. All right? So today's text. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jordan also reminded us of the disruptive nature of these things, of the Beatitudes. Do you find them? Do you find that way in your life? When you read them, do they cause a sort of unease? I do. Specifically, when I look at, at our first beatitude here, blessed are those who mourn. They disrupt my idea of what a blessing looks like. <clears throat> you know, you think of it, any connection of blessedness, especially when blessing is from God, with mourning seems contradictory, doesn't it? it a paradoxical at the least. It's confusing. It definitely expresses an idea that is contrary to those commonly held both in the church and in the larger society. You know, and of equal or greater difficulty is found in the meek will inherit the earth, which stands in stark contrast to the modern restatement of the golden rule. And I take this from those from probably the most scholarly point or part of the papers, if you remember papers, the publications. They're online now, though. If you take a look at the comic strip, The Wizard of Id, I'm not sure if any of you remember it, a daily newspaper comic strip satirizing modern American culture and politics. And they wrote, or the main character utters, the jester, whoever has the gold makes the rules. Right? Not the meek, but whoever has the gold makes the rules. And I think in our day and age, when we observe the gap that's happening in terms of wealth, we would say whoever has the gold makes much more gold. Right? And so where is that pointing us to put our trust in? In our wealth? In our power? But that's not what this beatitude says. So let's go back to the mourn, the mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, and even from the passage, why? Why would those who have been dwelling in darkness, we read before this, who have seen a great light, who have witnessed or even themselves experienced healing from every sort of ailment, why would they mourn? You know, you think of our circumstance right here. We went through quite a troubling time. We prayed that we would find a new lead pastor quickly, and we did. Why? Because of our skill? No, because God supplied. So is that a point of rejoicing, or should we be mourning? 
I would say we should be rejoicing. But Daryl Johnson, who wrote a, a book, good book on, on the Beatitudes, Living in Sync with the Reign of God, asks this question. Why does Jesus identify? Notice that he identifies passionate grief, because this is a very strong word in the original. Passionate grief as one of the marks upon whom, of those upon whom the light dawns, upon whom the kingdom of God has come. So I want to ask you a question. Have you ever experienced passionate grief? The kind of grief that grips you, the kind of grief that your whole chest heaves as you sob. I've experienced that kind of grief. Where you think it is uncontrollable, it is unconsolable. You can feel it physically and it moves you physically. That is the kind of grief we're talking about. Why is Jesus saying this? Why is this a blessing? Because in my experience, whatever level of grief I have suffered, whatever level of pain I have experienced, it never exceeded the grace that God gave me to deal with it. It never exceeded the comfort I received from His Spirit. Even if for a certain time, Life felt almost barely manageable. And then I have the hope that when he returns or I die, it will be totally forgotten. That's the kind of comfort we can look forward to. Comfort that we will survive what happens to us here. And then we will never remember again this the pain and suffering that we have endured. But why are they mourning? Why does Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn? And why were the people who first heard this message mourning? This is where we should not forget the message that was being preached. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Prepare yourself. They're, they're quoting out of Isaiah, where the passage is saying to the people of God, Prepare yourselves, your Messiah is going to come. So why would they be mourning? Would they realize how faithless they had been to God's covenant? Would they realize that because of that, they were living in a land that was their own but was not ruled by them? It was ruled by an occupying power, by a power that was not meek that was not gentle, that was not comforting or forgiving. It was brutal. But why were they there? Because they were there because of the covenant unfaithfulness of the people. So why do we mourn? Do we recognize, as they did, the poverty of their spirits and the poverty of their physical situation? That they had no control that they had no way of righting the wrongs that had been done. 
Do we recognize the poverty of our spirits, that we can do nothing? We have nothing that will overcome the results of our sin. The destructive effects of our sin are even becoming visible in creation and culture. When we look at the current events around us, it would be naive at best to think our society is not afflicted by many evils that are self-inflicted. Both personally and collectively, where do we all stand? We stand in poverty. But awareness of this sin displays another paradox of the Christian experience that disputes and disrupts how we think about our response, or at least the order of our response. As you become aware of the spirits working in your life, as you become aware of your own sin and of the sin around you, it should compel us not to look for a place of blame not to point out the sins of others with great intensity and frequency. No, the sensitivity should drive us and compel us to first confess our own sin, then to cry out to the Lord for forgiveness, and he will forgive. And this is the comfort that we can expect. When we are forgiven, the interesting thing is we are called to forgive when we are forgiven, truly forgiven, it removes and disrupts, and I would say shatters, the cycle of retribution. Because we are called to forgive. Not, not just forgive those people who have forgiven us, but forgive our enemies. For isn't this the comfort that we have received? For if you turn back to Isaiah 40, you will read this in the first two verses. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. And they can rejoice because that period is over. And that the reign of the Messiah is coming. So in our next beatitude, Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What would lead us to believe that the meek, who are instructed to refrain from anger and forsake wrath, will take possession of the earth? This one is, this one I found fascinating. Uh, virtually all commentators agree that Psalm 37 is the source for Jesus' actual words here. They may quibble about whether or not the land or the earth refers to a geographically bounded location or the entire globe, but there is no dispute that the phrase, the meek shall inherit the earth, is from Psalm 37. But <laughs> it kind of struck me I don't know whether you ever remember those commercials if you watch late night movies where somebody would be hawking some sort of product and they'd tell you all about this product and then they'd say, wait, there's more. And that's how I felt when I, was, when I started looking at Psalm 37. Wait, there's more. You know, it, it just hit me. 
This phrase, the meek shall inherit the earth, or inherit the earth in particular, only occurs nine times in the Old Testament. You think of that. The whole Old Testament, three quarters of your Bible, and that phrase happens only nine times. Three of them in Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. And they all refer to the people of Israel taking possession of what God had promised. Then there's six. The remaining six are all found in the book of Psalms. And you say, the Psalms is a big book. But you know what? Five out of the six occur in Psalm 37. Five out of the six. Oh, man. I tell you, if you picture yourself as a biblical investigator, this psalm is the smoking gun. It will direct us and give us a description of who the meek are. Who will inherit the earth? So in the five places that are in Psalm 37, I want to point out a few things. I mean, if you like, turn to Psalm 37. If you look in verse 8 and 9, we read this. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself. I wish there were a better English word than that, fret. You know, I, I know the musicians will think of their guitars immediately. I don't know what I think of when I hear the word fret. What it means is don't agitate yourself. If metaphorically, it's do not kindle a fire. That idea of stirring something up in you that is anger. That is to react and respond to evil. Do not fret yourself. It tends only to evil. For evil will, for evildoers will, shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the earth. You're going to see in, in all of these five examples a contrast between the wicked and those who will inherit the earth. For the wicked will not inherit the earth. The second, Psalm 37, verses 10 and 11. This is, this is where the direct quotation comes in Matthew 5. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now, unfortunately, <clears throat> this is one of the things about our English Bibles that happens all the time. The words that are used to translate the Hebrew are not consistent because this is exactly the same word that you find in Genesis chapter 1 where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Right? Earth. And they do not... I don't go through all this stuff, but essentially what that means is it means the stuff we all stand on, the stuff we drive our cars on, the stuff we walked, we walk on when we go out into the woods, really. We walk on the earth, the land, the dirt. And that's what it's saying here. The meek shall inherit the land. But notice what else the meek are going to be doing. I find this fascinating. They're going to be looking for where the wicked used to be and they will not be able to find them. They will not be able to find any trace of them. Okay? Does that sound like a place where you would like to live? Where you would like to be? 
So, uh, the third occurrence, Psalm 37, verses 21, 22. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. Those who are declared blessed. Those who are by the Lord declared to inherit the land will. But those cursed by him shall be cut off. The fourth instance, 28 and 29 of Psalm 37, For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. So you notice that. Who preserves the meek? God does. And when he provides a home for them, how long will they live there? Forever. But what about the wicked? They're cut off. They're nowhere to be found. But that's God's activity. It's not ours. So finally, in verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on it. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. Notice that no, not once in this psalm is there any active engagement of the meek to confront the wicked. They do not take any active action against them. Who does consistently? The Lord. He is the judge of all. So what is meekness? Now, meekness is not weakness. It's not weakness because we are called upon not to respond to those who persecute us. We are called upon to love those who hate us. So it's not weakness. It takes great strength to act in a meek manner. Meekness is that disposition of spirit in which we accept God's dealings. I like, I like the way this author puts it simply because he points us in the direction of first, our first concern is what is our relationship to God? What is our responsibility before God? Meekness is that disposition of spirit in which we accept God's dealing with us. Yeah. <clears throat> that it is good. And therefore we don't dispute it or resist it. The meek are those who wholly rely on God rather than their own strength to defend them against injustice. We rely upon God to do that. Thus the meek, meekness toward evil people means knowing God is permitting their in the injuries that they, they sustain, that he is using them to purify his elect and that he will deliver them in his time. And this, remember this, meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness. Now, does that contradict common views in our society? 
Find out who you are and then just live that way. No matter what anybody else says, be assertive. Just do it. Or, as the one I saw lately, just send it. That happens all the time. I can tell you that. <clears throat> but the meek, the meek will wait upon the Lord. The meek will trust in the Lord. The meek will be delivered and exalted by the Lord. They will inherit the earth, but not just merely a piece of real estate, but the promised land, the land that God has cleansed, the land that he will populate with his people, and the land that he will dwell in with his people. That that is the hope that we have. That once again, we will live not simply in a place that God has created, but we will live with God in the place he has created for both of us. So what about the Beatitudes? Like I said before, they are declarative statements. But the nature of the declaration is such that it readily urges us to a specific course of action that we should not vary from. We are called, just as the disciples were called, to follow Jesus. It's a simple call. Jesus, walking by the lake, looks at Peter and Andrew and James and John and says, come, follow me. And they did. And it's the same call that we hear today. It's the same call that you have received, that I have received. Come, follow Jesus. And in the power of the Spirit, we are able to do that. And the Spirit will lead us to recognize our own poverty, that we are dependent upon him. He will lead us into times of mourning, not only for our sin, the sins that we commit, but the damage that is done to us because of the sins of others. And we will take it as our correction, as the purifying of our hearts so that we can follow him more faithfully. Now what that will look like in your life, I have no idea. But ask the Heavenly Father. He will show you Now, he might not show you immediately. There have been many things I have suffered in my life where I have not understood them for years. And it becomes clearer. It doesn't become any easier, but it does become clearer. So when you ask your father, he will comfort you. He will lead you into your inheritance. And there we will see our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, that you provide for us all that we need. And I thank you, Lord, that you are patient with us. You are patient with those of us who are slow learners and those of us who catch on quick. And Lord, we ask 
that you would continue to discipline us, to guide us, to purify us, that we may glorify you in a manner that is worthy of you. And we ask with Paul that the Lord Jesus Christ himself and you, our Father, who have loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort our hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.